Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. This is Mireille Geno, and you're listening to the New Books in African Studies podcast. Joining me today is Professor Jean-Germain Croix, Professor of Political Science and Public Policy Administration at the University of Missouri, St. Louis, in St. Louis, Missouri. He's the author of State Failure, Underdevelopment, and Foreign Intervention in Haiti, and the co-author of When Reality Contradicts Rhetoric, World Bank Lending Practices in Developing Countries in Historical, Theoretical, and Empirical Perspectives. Today, we'll be discussing his new book, Healthcare Policy in Africa, Institutions and Politics from Colonialism to the Present, published by Roman and Littlefield. Professor Grohl, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure for me to be with you today. Great. I wonder if you uh, would begin by telling us a bit about yourself. Well, I am, a, uh, as you mentioned, a professor of uh, political science and uh, Public Policy Administration at the University of Missouri, St. Louis, uh, USA. I uh, started as an assistant professor and uh, uh, became a full professor in uh, 2013. Uh, I did my uh, graduate work at the University of California at Berkeley, uh, political science. My uh, areas of specialty were uh, African politics, comparative politics, and uh, public administration. I received uh, the master's degree from the State University of New York at Binghamton, an MPA, master's in public administration, and uh, before that, a bachelor's degree also from uh, the State University of New York at Binghamton in uh, economics and uh, sociology. I have uh, visited or and worked in about 15 African countries. Uh, I was born in the Caribbean, specifically in Haiti. So my work basically spans the, uh, the African world, both diaspora and uh, continental. I really enjoyed reading this book and I really enjoyed the fact, uh, just the fact of this book because I think it, uh, it certainly, um, contributes a significant, uh, amount to, uh, to the scholarship, uh, uh, regarding, um, healthcare in Africa. So I'm really looking forward to, um, hearing, um, hearing you talk more about it. I wonder if we'd begin, um, with your introduction where you, uh, go through a review of the dominant schools of thought in, pub- in policy studies, and, uh, and you explicate uh, some key terms that recur throughout the book, um, among those uh, healthcare policy um, and, um, and, and public policy. And I wonder if you could give us a working definition uh, of healthcare policy. Well, as you, as you mentioned, basically in the book, I, I start by examining the uh, state of African studies in the last 30 years. And what I notice is that uh, policy in Africa uh, has tended to be neglected. 
In the 1980s, the emphasis in African studies was on structural adjustment, uh, economic reform, uh, which was understandable because at the 1980s are known in African studies as uh, Africa's last decade. And then at the beginning of the 1990s, you also you had a transition from a focus on uh, economic reform to a focus on democratic reform, democratic transition. And then towards the end of the uh, 1990s and early 2000, the focus again shifted to conflicts, state failure, uh, uh, particularly ethnic conflicts uh, and, and, and the Great Lakes. Uh, so uh, what I try to do in this uh, chapter and in this book is to fill in the gap in African studies by focusing on policy, specifically healthcare policy. What do I mean by uh, healthcare policy? Uh, well, healthcare policy refers to the actions or decisions undertaken by the authorities of a community, such as a country, regarding the health of its citizens. These decisions can either be active or passive, that is to say, non-decisions. However, I hasten to point out that uh, even though government tends to underwrite healthcare policy, uh, government actors are not the only actors in the making of healthcare policy. In developing countries in particular, numerous non-governmental organizations and private actors are also involved in the process, sometimes even supplanting or surpassing uh, government. And so to take an example, in Rwanda, uh, cancer care, uh, the largest provider of cancer care is basically Partners in Health, uh, which is located in a town called Butaro. Uh, uh, in addition, Partners in Health uh, trains Rwandan uh, cancer specialists. Before that, there were very before Partners in Health, there were very few cancer specialists in Rwanda. Now, this one organization, uh, working closely with the government of Rwanda, is training doctors in, in cancer treatment. So even though government tends to play an important role in healthcare policy, it is not the only actor. In developing countries, non-governmental organizations and private actors also play a key role in the making uh, as well as the implementation of uh, healthcare policy. Right, and that's essentially the central uh, thesis of the book, which is that, that African healthcare policy does not take place uh, in a vacuum, and, and many factors, including global, globalization and brain drain, affect uh, affect policy. Yes, you're quite correct. Uh, and so uh, I focus uh, in Chapter 1 on uh, both uh, uh, the, the theories that informed, you know, public policy, as well as the factors more or less unique uh, to Africa, unique between quotation marks, that influence, uh, uh, you know, healthcare policy for good and bad. And one of these factors is, uh, you know, uh, globalization. Uh, that is to say what I call the spread uh, of uh, information, uh, communication, and uh, transportation technology and uh, the uh, brain drain that it is facilitating uh, uh, in Africa, which has negative consequences for, 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 for how 
uh, healthcare policy is implemented throughout the continent. Yeah, and I would I would uh, encourage uh, listeners to uh, pay particular attention in that first chapter to an interesting uh, challenge you make to the um, sort of current definitions of globalization, um, and and you choose instead to define globalization as as technological in- innovation that makes possible the flow of capital um, um, rather than uh, globalization as the spread of capitalism. I thought that was particularly uh, mm-hmm. interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, point and frame uh, f- framing uh, for this early chapter. Right. No, the, the key point here is that if you focus on globalization as the rapid spread of uh, information, communication, and transportation technology, then you can see that it facilitates the spread of other things, including you know ideas. Uh, regarding how you structure an economy, in other words, capitalism or democracy. So, uh, so, 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 so the substance of globalization uh, is not the result, but rather the phenomenon itself, that is to say the spread uh, of, of, of various kinds of technologies which facilitate the transcendence of other things such as the economy, the democ- democracy, uh, and so on. And so uh, globalization, for example, uh, is playing an important role in African healthcare to the extent that uh, in, in some African hospitals, such as, again, Partners in Health uh, Hospital in Butawa, Rwanda, surgeries being performed in Rwanda can now be observed by uh, doctors at uh, Massachusetts General Hospital. Mm-hmm. And so uh, surgery, uh, which we used to think of as a very intimate medical intervention, now has jumped borders mm-hmm. because of globalization, that is to say because of communication uh, and, and uh, technology. Uh, and, and we have a number of instances uh, and a number of other examples like this where Again, technology is driving how we think about healthcare, how we frame healthcare issues. So uh, things such as total quality management, uh, managed care. Uh, in other words, the very language, the very idioms that African healthcare policymakers use now to talk about healthcare in Africa uh, essentially are driven by technology. <laughs> And so in Ghana, uh, there is an emphasis on, on having, uh, uh, you know, electronic medical files okay, as a way of reducing costs and managing the Ghanaian healthcare system back better. You see? There is also an emphasis on providing uh, uh, information about uh, different kinds of providers so that Ghanaian patients can make informed decisions. Again, this is being driven by information technology. Well, and I'll definitely ask you to, to come back to the uh, the Ghanaian example uh, later on in our discussion because it's a, it's a very um, rich example um, and provides insight into uh, a lot of the um, a lot of the things taken up in in the book. So. Um, I wonder, though, uh, if we could, if we, if we moved on to uh, your second chapter, which uh, discusses healthcare policy in colonial Africa, uh, specifically from 1870 to 1960, um, and the one of the things that I thought uh, 
was interesting about this this part of the book uh, is that you make a point to suggest that the historiography of healthcare policy in Africa should begin uh, not with the uh, late 19th century Berlin Conference, but rather with the exploration period that immediately precedes it. Uh, so I wonder if you would say why you think um, why you think that why you think that's so. The, this accounting uh, for healthcare policy should begin um, then, and also. Uh, what what you mean by um, healthcare policy in this period being uh, quote limited in scope and coverage? Okay, well, good question. Uh, well, uh, I, I, I would even like to preface uh, before I answer your question my comment by observing that even before the exploration period uh, in the early eighteen in the eighteen seventies, Africa had healthcare policy. <laughs> Uh, this is very important. I don't mean to suggest that before, you know, uh, the uh, presence of Europeans in Africa, there was uh, no healthcare system and there were no healthcare policies. And uh, again, if I may use the case that I know uh, more about, if, uh, Ghana and, and colonial Ghana and uh, Ashanti land. Uh, the Asantehini, uh, the king, uh, essentially mandated that people use boiled water to, uh, to, 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 to clean their latrine. This is evidence that even in colonial Africa, people understood the connection between public health and good health. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you go back even further to so-called medieval Africa, uh, in Timbuktu, the archive of Timbuktu contained extensive documents regarding medical practices in, uh, in, 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 in medieval Africa, practices which were in some ways more advanced than medical practices in Europe, where until the 19th century, it was common for people to be bled to death mm-hmm. uh, because people thought that what caused disease was bad blood. <laughs> And so, therefore, they would drain your plasma and, 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 and people would die that way. As far as we know, that practice was not uh, widely uh, adopted in, in Africa. <laughs> uh, so, coming back now to your question, yes, I uh, uh, talk about 1870 or the 1870s rather than 1885 as the beginning of uh, sort of more systematized healthcare system in colonial Africa uh, because uh, it was really with the uh, exploration uh, efforts that a European presence uh, deep into the interior of Africa was contemplated. And so uh, during this period, uh, uh, I mean, before this period, the European presence in Africa, in West Africa particularly, was limited to the coast and it was limited to trade. But with the exploration period, uh, that set the stage for a more sustained presence, that is to say for colonialism. So during this period, men like David Livingston, uh, Emin Pasha, uh, Savognan de Braza, uh, John Rowlands, uh, who was also known as Henry Morton Stanley, you know, went into uh, a deeper uh, uh, effort uh, 
to uh, understand Africa and to set the, the, ge- the geography and the topography of Africa and to set the stage for, for colonialism. So as they went into these explorations, they encountered diseases uh, which they had to cure for themselves. Uh, so they fell sick. And so they had to treat themselves. In addition, in these explorations, uh, medical specialists were often part of the equipage because even in this period, what you find is that medical specialists were used in order to develop amity with local Africans. So these explorations would treat not only the explorers, but the Africans that uh, the explorers met along the way. Now, I should also mention that uh, relationships between local Africans and explorers were not always cordial. Cordial. So sometimes there were fight between them. And, that, and of course, whenever people fight, there are injuries which need to be treated. <laughs> and so uh, these explorations also had a medical component stemming from conflicts in addition to epid- epidemiological problems. Mm-hmm. And of course, uh, some of these explorers uh, were uh, missionaries as well. And later during colonialism proper, missionaries came to play a very important role in colonial medicine. In some ways, in fact, uh, missionary medicine uh, was much more important, much more extensive than uh, colonial state-provided medicine. In other words, the medical missionaries were the real pioneer in the advent of, uh, of systematic uh, so-called modern, uh, you know, healthcare systems in Africa. Well, along with that, um, one of the things you, you talk about in the in this chapter, uh, with the example of the British Medical Act, right, is that uh, that at a certain point in the in the colonial period, Western trained African doctors uh, were denied um, the right to practice medicine in their own countries. So I would think that that would also um, uh, sort of consolidate that um, that hold that the, the missionary medicine or medical missionaries sort of had on on treatment and and policy. Right, right. Uh, you know, what, one of the things that happened in in the nineteen twenties uh, is that uh, you begin to have uh, a core of uh, medical providers who were African uh, in, 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 in countries like Liberia, Sierra Leone, Nigeria, Ivory Coast, uh, you had at first so-called African, you know, bush doctors. They were not fully, uh, you know, medical doctors in the Western sense, but they did have medical knowledge. And of course, in the 1930s and 1940s, you did have people who did become, uh, you know, uh, full medical doctors, uh, such as Kamuzubanda in, in Malawi, uh, and, 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 and even, oh, Felix Fedboigny, who was not fully a medical doctor who had, but who had advanced medical training. Uh, generally speaking, uh, these providers were excluded uh, from practicing medicine or there were severe constraints uh, placed upon them because, among other things, 
colonial officials did not want for African medical providers to to treat uh, European women, for example. <laughs> uh, uh, also, by limiting uh, competition from uh, uh, African medical providers, European medical providers in Africa could keep their status and their wages or salaries. Right. Uh, so there were various reasons, some economic, some social, and some, quite frankly, racist, that, that, that limited the... Also, the colonial state, quite frankly, uh, did not make it a priority to train African doctors and, and other medical providers. Uh, so uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, you know, the supply of medical providers during colonialism was limited. But yes, after a decade or so of colonialism on the continent, you did begin to have, uh, you know, uh, trained African medical providers, some doctors, some nurses, uh, some what we, may, what we may now call nurse practitioners uh, developing in, 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 in the 1920s. And certainly by the end of colonialism, uh, there was, in some countries, a fairly decent supply of medical providers, such as in Senegal, for example. Mm -hmm. Well, so, so the, one of the things that this chapter introduces that continues throughout the book is, is this, um, uh, I don't know what the, the best term, whether it's a, a a clash or a confrontation between a uh, sort of Western approach to, um, to medicine, to illness, um, uh, which is a, a biomedical um, approach um, that in opposition to a, um, an indigenous African approach. And I wonder if you would um, explain for us what, what this uh, biomedical approach sort of consists of. Okay. Good question once again. Uh, during colonialism, uh, there was a clash, uh, among many clashes, <laughs> between Africans and Europeans uh, in terms of how you view disease and how you treat disease. Uh, and uh, the African medical uh, epistemology and worldview Disease was a combination of uh, physical ailments and spiritual ailments. In other words, it was a combination of, of physics and metaphysics. Uh, thus, uh, the treatment of disease required not only uh, intervention on the body, but also intervention on the spirit. So African medical intervention but in the lower Congo, for example, included drumming, singing, uh, praying, uh, in addition to using, you know, uh, you know, herbal medicine. Uh, this was in contrast with uh, the Western view of medicine and the Western view of uh, disease, which basically saw disease as uh, uh, stemming from uh, biological breakdown of the body, uh, which could be repaired by chemicals. Okay. And so uh, in, in, in Western medical epistemology, if someone is sick, 
you do one of two things, both of which uh, have to do with intervening on the body. So we can talk, and I talk in the chapter of biopower, mm-hmm. biomedical power. And in, in Western uh, medical practice, uh, you if somebody is sick, you give them medicine, you give them drugs, so that uh, uh, you can reestablish the equilibrium in the body through chemistry. The second thing that you do is you 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 you, you provide surgery. Okay. In other words, you repair the body part. So this is the view of the body as machine and of the medical provider as a mechanic. <laughs> In Africa, the medical provider was both a mechanic and a priest. However, uh, since uh, African missionaries looked down on spiritual, on Africa, since European missionaries, excuse me, looked down on spiritual on African spirituality, they tended to view the more metaphysical part of African medicine as superstition, and therefore as something that they should crack down on. (laughs) Ironically, uh, we are now seeing that the African view of disease was the correct one, (laughs) that increasingly uh, in Western medicine we recognize that you not only intervene on the body, but also the predisposition of the mind uh, has an important bearing on uh, how well the body is repaired. So Africans have the correct view uh, all along, that is to say a holistic approach to curing disease involving physical intervention and spiritual intervention. So I thought that that was a very interesting... So sometimes... The oppressor can learn from the oppressed. Absolutely. <laughs> well, so in in uh, continuing in that in that vein, right? If we if we could uh, discuss the, the third and fourth chapters of the book, um, they are uh, both titled "Healthcare Policy in Postcolonial Africa." Chapter three uh, is subtitled "The Influence of External Institutions." Um, if we hear you you discuss the internationalization of healthcare policy and presumably uh, some of what you've just discussed, uh, which is this uh, uh, turn in Western medicine to recognize um, the, the not just the value, but the, the necessity of a holistic um, approach to illness and, um, and medicine. Um, you, you cite a number of, of examples um, in the, in the chapter of, of this internationalization of healthcare policy. In particular, you privilege the example of uh, the Millennium Challenge Corporation, the MCC. Um, and I, I wonder if you would uh, tell us what makes the MCC especially worthy of, of critical analysis. Okay. Uh, so, uh, so chapter two argues that African healthcare policy was internationalized during the colonial period. And that set the stage for the further internationalization of healthcare policy in Africa in the post-colonial period, so that you cannot understand healthcare policy in post-colonial Africa without understanding the colonial period. Uh, the internationalization of uh, healthcare policy in post-colonial Africa is due to a variety of factors, not just colonialism, but the fact that African countries continue to be highly dependent 
on uh, international institutions, particularly aid institutions, foreign aid institutions. Uh, so one of these institutions, in fact the latest, is uh, the Millennium uh, Challenge Corporation, which was uh, uh, previously called the Millennium Challenge Account. It was uh, first announced by uh, former President George W. Bush in uh, 2002. And it represents, as I say in the book, the latest example of the internationalization of healthcare policy in post-colonial Africa. So uh, what is the Millennium uh, Challenge Corporation? Basically, it was an organization uh, created to provide grants, not loans to countries, in exchange for these countries undertaking uh, economic, political, and social policy reforms in order to accelerate economic growth and uh, reduce poverty. In other words, the MCC uh, was and is a continuation of the policy-based lending of the 1980s, except that the MCC is a creation of the U.S. government, whereas the policy-based lending of the 1980s, which was uh, which was embedded in structural adjustment, were pushed generally by the World Bank and the IMF. Uh, so under MCC rule, uh, uh, countries uh, apply for grants to the MCC, and uh, the MCC developed a number of uh, NDCs or matrices and decide whether uh, countries, the, 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 the project, proposed by these countries meet uh, the criteria, the performance criteria, as spelled out by the MCC. So uh, performance indicators include economic freedom, uh, ruling justly, and investing in people. So you can imagine if a country wants, uh, uh, you know, uh, help in healthcare, it puts together a grant proposal that demonstrates that it is going to invest and in, 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 uh, and improve health conditions of its citizens. And so that would fall under investing in people. And technically, that would qualify such countries for MCC aid. The problem with the MCC is that these performance indicators uh, you know, are generally decided by MCC. So they are kind of a, a report card that are given to countries. And uh, there are, are also grades that are given to countries. So both the report cards and the grades are provided by the MCC, uh, as well as the performance indicators. So the MCC is both, uh, you know, uh, judge and executioner, so to speak, both player and, and referee. Uh, and so African countries uh, pretend to be partners, or should I say recipient countries, pretend to be partners with the MCC, when in fact they are at best junior partners. Mm-hmm. It is the MCC that decides, uh, that, that makes the key decision. So to give you an example outside of Africa, 
you know, there is probably no country in the developing world that has invested more in uh, human development than Cuba, particularly where health is concerned. You know, Cuba has more, you know, doctors per capita than any country in the world, including the United States. But it is a safe bet that uh, Cuba, at least for the foreseeable future, is not likely to be qualified for MCC grants under investing in people. (laughs) So, uh, uh, for other reasons. Uh, And so the MCC, uh, while it is theoretically uh, an innovation and and, and, and aid policy to the extent that it stresses accountability, but it also further perpetuates dependence, uh, the dependence of recipient countries on uh, on 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 U.S. on, on U.S. aid, and it it also demonstrates that, uh, or at least it has the potential of underscoring the fact underscoring the fact that. Uh, priorities that are not regarded as priorities of the MCC will not be funded, uh, thus uh, driving home the point that the MCC is a way of, or maybe a way of remaking, of remaking recipient countries in the image of the U.S. government rather than their own image. Well, and, and that's... Um and so if, if, I may, if I may continue, so, so the key point here is that uh, American aid is given to countries uh, or the willingness of American aid to be given to countries hinges on these countries pursuing market-friendly economic policies and, and democracy and other social policies that meet with American approval rather than the approval of the citizens of those countries themselves. Yeah, and that's and that's a, a great opportunity for us to t- to talk again about the um about uh, the fourth chapter which talks uh, is subtitled measuring the impact of local institutions uh because I think one of the um uh one of the persistent perceptions and narratives um is is uh is of this imbalance uh, in terms of what um, African countries uh, uh, or states are willing to uh, willing or able to do in terms of setting policy for for their citizens and citizens, and as you as you um, discussed just now, um, establishing policies that are reflective of the, the will of the of the citizens of the countries rather than uh, of external um, agents, whether donors or um, uh, other other actors. So I, I think in this chapter, just, just again for the benefit of, of our listeners, um, you take up this idea of how um, local institutions, not of external origin um, in this case, um, of a macrosocial character, in, um, empirically influence healthcare policy, and I wonder if you could talk about that. I I, um, I was particularly interested in this chapter, um, your discussion of of spending, right, of government spending on um, on healthcare, and uh, and I and I uh, 
would love it if you would uh, share some more about that. Yes, uh, this is uh, the empirical part of the study uh, in that it is in this chapter in which I try to measure, uh, you know, health policy outcomes and, and, and try to account for uh, and try to provide an explanation of, uh, of uh, healthcare policy outcomes. Uh, this is a very standard approach in, uh, in healthcare policy studies. Uh, it was uh, pioneered essentially by uh, Joseph Newhouse of uh, the Rand Corporation in the early 1970s, who asked a very basic question. And that is, what is the connection between uh, national health and healthcare spending on one hand, on the one hand, and what is the connection between healthcare spending and healthcare outcomes? Uh, Joseph Newhouse asked these questions for developed countries in the, in the early 1970s. What I try to do is to ask these same questions as they apply to African countries. Uh, because again, we know a lot more about healthcare in developed countries than we do in developing countries. Mm-hmm. Certainly than, than we do about, uh, regarding African countries. So in this chapter, one of the questions that I ask is, what is the connection between national health and healthcare spending in Africa? Uh, this is not just an academic question. In 2001, uh, African countries met in Abuja, Nigeria, uh, and pledged uh, to devote at least 15% of their annual budget on their healthcare sec- on their healthcare uh, systems. 15%. Uh, so the question that I try to answer in, in, in this in this chapter is. Uh, you know, did uh, African countries meet that objective by 2013 when I was writing the book? And and, and that question, you know, uh, dovetails nicely with the bigger question regarding the connection between uh, wealth and healthcare spending, healthcare spending and, and, and healthcare outcomes. And so uh, what I found, uh, among other things in this chapter, so I have data uh, for 46 African countries. Let me make that very clear. So the great majority of African countries is included uh, uh, in this study. That is to say 84% of African states are part of this this study. uh, so, uh, did African countries uh, meet the goal of the goal of the Abuja Declaration, which was to devote fifteen percent of their annual budget on their healthcare sector? Uh, what I found was uh, no. Uh, that generally speaking, uh, African countries uh, 
between 2001 when the policy was enunciated and 2012 and 2013. So that's like a 10 to 11 year period, a 12 year period. Uh, uh, African countries did not meet the goal of the Abuja Declaration, which was to devote 15% of their budget to health. However, what I found, uh, which was very interesting, was that to the extent that African countries were approaching meeting the Abuja Declaration, uh, or even meeting it, it was not the richer countries, it was the poorer countries. Okay. So that's sort of counterintuitive. Uh, you would have expected, you know, the Nigerias, the South Africans, you know, the uh, wealthier African countries to have easily met the goal of the Abuja Declaration, which was once again to devote 15% of their budget, uh, of their annual budget to healthcare. And instead, what I found uh, were countries like, you know, uh, 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 Rwanda, uh, uh, somewhat surprisingly, Liberia. Uh, I said somewhat surprisingly because Liberia, you know, went through a very brutal civil, civil war in the 1990s. Okay, so, uh, so what I found was that it was rather the poorest African countries that tended to devote a greater share of their annual budget to healthcare. And so that calls for an explanation. And uh, uh, the most plausible one uh, for me, uh, given the data, was that uh, the poorest African countries uh, had qualified for debt relief during this period, uh, provided that uh, they used the foregone interest payments to devote to their healthcare system. And I, and, and I, 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 I think that that is the main reason for, uh, for the improvement of the poorest African countries uh, and spending a greater share of their, uh, of, of, of their budget on healthcare. So this demonstrates that debt relief can make a difference. Uh, it demonstrates that, uh, you know, uh, 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 it is possible to, uh, uh, for countries to increase their commitment to healthcare spending with some help from the international community. Uh, in some of these poorest countries, you also have uh, a commitment, a, a greater commitment by government. So uh, Rwanda, for example, uh, explicitly uh, devote almost like uh, 20 to 25 percent of its budget on healthcare. So, in addition to uh, to uh, to uh, international institution, national government commitment also matters. In other words, local institutions also matter. Uh, and then uh, I, the second part of the question you may recall is, what is the impact of healthcare spending on healthcare outcomes? And so what I did here was I took some of the healthcare-related Millennium Development Goals. 
specifically MDG4, MDG5, and MDG6. Uh, so these were goals that were established by the United Nations in, in, in 2000. And so I asked which African countries were more likely or more unlikely to come closest to meeting these MDGs or to not meeting them. And again, what I found uh, was that there is not necessarily a correlation in Africa between uh, uh, national wealth uh, and uh, healthcare outcomes. But there is a connection between healthcare spending and healthcare outcomes. In other words, the countries that tend to spend more on healthcare spending, meaning the poorest African countries, experience drastic improvement in the MDG 4, 5, and 6. In fact, uh, what I found in some instances is that uh, uh, the richer African countries, such as uh, South Africa, did not uh, make substantial improvement in and, and MDG six, for example, MDG six, for example, such as reducing HIV AIDS. Okay, uh, and so there is a connection between healthcare spending and healthcare outcome. Uh, thus, spending does matter. Uh, poor countries that commit to healthcare spending can experience fairly significant uh, positive healthcare outcomes. Uh, and so it does matter uh, what countries spend on their healthcare system. So that's that, that's the main idea uh, in this chapter is to empirically uh, examine the impact of uh, institutions, local institutions, on policy and on policy and on, and on, and on outcomes. Now, uh, some of these institutions that, are, that I call local are somewhat arbitrary. Thus, one of the institutions that I look at is ICT, Information and Communication Technology. Of course, you know, the Internet, for example, was not invented in Africa. But it is local in the sense that, uh, uh, you know, Africans use the internet and other forms of communication technology and their social and economic relations. Uh, so we examine ICT, we examine government, we examine economies, and we examine regime types, meaning democracy. Another interesting variable, the uh, independent variable that we look to, uh, to examine healthcare policy and healthcare outcome is what I call stateness. In other words, the degree to which countries have uh, a working state, I initially hypothesized, would have some bearing on their healthcare policy and healthcare policy outcomes. And I didn't find that to be the case, by the way, which was uh, kind of disappointing, but it is what it is. <laughs> uh, because I had expected for so-called failed state, to, to, for state failure to have an impact. I explained that in the chapter, why I think uh, that, that is not the case, but uh, that was one of the intriguing results that we, that, that we had to deal with.
Well, and uh, in the same way um, that you that you use stateness in that chapter, um, in the following chapter, which deals with healthcare policy and African humanitarianism, you actually use um, the embeddedness of humanitarian organizations as a as a means of classification, right? A, an organizing principle uh, uh, to determine um, yeah. what humanitarian organizations are and what sorts of uh, what sorts of impacts they have on mm-hmm. on policy? Uh, so mm-hmm. I wonder if we we could turn to that because I think that, again there's there's so many interesting uh, connections in the last uh, chapter mm-hmm. discussing um, right. uh, debt relief, uh, say, as one form of help from the international community, and humanitarianism, right, is another uh, really obvious um, form of of help. Um, and so, uh, so if you could discuss that, that would be great. Yes. Well, actually, this is a very nice segue uh, into uh, into a very important topic. Uh, I didn't do this in the book, but I wish that I had now that I'm speaking to you. <laughs> and that is, it may very well be that the reason why stateness does not have much of an impact on health policy outcome uh, that it's that may well be due to the presence of humanitarian organization but I, I didn't examine that in, in the book nevertheless humanitarian organizations you know play a very important role in African healthcare systems I call them humanitarian organization humanitarian organizations or institutions other people refer to them as NGOs non-governmental organizations. So what I try to do, so Africa probably has more of these organizations than any other continent. And so uh, in Tanzania, for example, uh, in the early 2000s, the number of uh, of NGOs was estimated at at 10,000. Right? So uh, humanitarian organizations, they play an important role in social policy making in Africa, uh, perhaps more so in healthcare than any other area. Uh, in 2007, for example, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation allocated 61% of its grants, which uh, was the equivalent of $1.2 billion to global health programs, many of which were, were in Africa. Uh, however, uh, there are humanitarian organizations and there are humanitarian organizations. In other words, uh, not all humanitarian organizations work the same way or are the same, or are, or are of the same size. So, uh, one important thing that I try to do in this chapter is to construct a typology or a taxonomy of humanitarian organizations. And, uh, basically I, uh, construct this typo, this typology based on uh, what I call the degree of embeddedness of uh, 
various humanitarian organizations with the local institutions in Africa, particularly the state. So there are certain uh, humanitarian organizations that maintain very deep ties to the state. So I call them the deeply embedded humanitarian organization. So these organizations, in fact, can be seen as the implementing agents mm -hmm. of the state. So state officials, they make policy and then they more or less rely on these humanitarian organizations to implement policy. Mm -hmm. All right? So that's the deeply embedded humanitarian organization. So it's part of, it's, it's, it's part of the system of governance, mm -hmm. in other words. And then you have uh, other types of humanitarian organizations that are less uh, uh, embedded uh, with the state and other uh, local institutions. Uh, so one example of a deeply embedded humanitarian organization would be uh, Paul Farmer's Partners in Health, which I talked about earlier in, 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 uh, in, in Rwanda. But Partners in Health also operate you know, clinics in uh, Lesotho and in, uh, and in Swaziland and outside of uh, Africa and in, uh, in, uh, in Haiti. In all of these countries, basically, uh, partners in health, if I may be redundant, partners with local governments, national governments, and, 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 and then become essentially uh, part of the state-provided or state-supported healthcare system. Uh, but this is not the way all humanitarian organizations necessarily operate. There are some humanitarian organizations that make it a policy to keep their distance vis-à-vis -vis local institutions, particularly the state. So I call them conditionally embedded humanitarian organization, conditionally embedded humanitarian organization. They try to maintain a certain distance from the state so that they can operate with independence. There is some advantage to doing that in that if you become too closely affiliated with a government, particularly with a non-democratic government, uh, should that government lose power, as a humanitarian organization, you may find yourself, uh, you know, being thrown out of the country. <laughs> okay. But at the same time, by partnering with, a, with an existing government, you may have access to resources and you may have freedom of mobility that you may not otherwise have had if you had maintained your distance. <laughs> so how much uh, humanitarian organization are embedded or not embedded in the societies in which they operate offer uh, advantages and disadvantages. And so uh, as a humanitarian organization, you have to decide, you know, uh, uh, which, uh, 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 which strategy is best uh, uh, for you. Uh, in the book, I talk about a very interesting uh, type of uh, humanitarian organization. That is what I call the globally embedded, the globally 
uh, embedded and multifaceted humanitarian organization, GEMO. Uh, uh, an example of that would be the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Uh, the Carter Center would be an example, we would be another example of a globally embedded and multifaceted humanitarian organization. So these are I, what I call them the humanitarian equivalent of multinational corporations. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, uh, as you as you well know, uh, uh, you know the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation was founded by the former head of one of the largest multinational corporations, right. Microsoft. Okay, so uh, this is uh, something that has happened uh, in the in the late twentieth century. That happened in the late twentieth century, and. Uh, early 21st century, where multimillionaires and, 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 and billionaires are establishing foundations that are transnational in scope and that are also multifaceted. So if you look at the early humanitarian organization in the West, such as, you know, the Ford Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, you know, they did do some work overseas, but generally speaking, they were national in scope and interest. Uh, Now what you have is, again, uh, uh, the internationalization of humanitarian humanitarian work. And so the the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation dwarfs not only the budget, of, uh, uh, you know, healthcare ministries in Africa, but the budget even of the World Health Organization. <laughs> so in this sense, uh, humanitarianism is getting even bigger than, than states and multilateral agencies. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, but another thing that's occurring uh, in, 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 in healthcare in Africa is that you are beginning to have, as more and more Africans become billionaires, you are also beginning to have Africa-centered and Africa-born humanitarian organizations that are also transnational. Right. Like the Dangote Foundation. So you have the Dangote Foundation in Nigeria. It's based in Nigeria but it played an important role, for example, during the Ebola crisis in Liberia. You have the Shandaria Foundation in Kenya, which is led by the Shandaria, you know, conglomerate. Uh, so uh, this is a very interesting development in that historically in Africa, you know, Africans, wealthier Africans, were engaged in humanitarian work, but they tended to be informal. Okay. Uh, it is, as I mentioned in the chapter, it is a rare African of some means that do not take care of at least the extended family, if not, you know, the village. <laughs> so there has always been humanitarian work in Africa by the well-to-do, but now it's becoming more systematized <laughs> and more organized uh, and but I hesitate to say more Western, right, right. but uh, you know you you get my point. And, and and furthermore, these humanitarian organizations like the Dangote Foundation, they are not only operating outside of their African country of origin; they are even operating outside of the continent. Mm-hmm. So during the earthquake in Pakistan, for example, 
in, in, in the early in the, in the first decade of the 2000, the Dengote Foundation donated money to Pakistan. Okay, that's an important development, at least for me, in that you know, uh, you know, Africa in the popular imagination is always thought of as a sort of as a recipient place. And Africans are staking. <laughs> well, Africans are also giving, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, in, the, in, in the humanitarian field. And, 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 and that's an interesting, it's an interesting development. So as more and more uh, Africans succeed economically, we can expect uh, uh, the humanitarian sector in Africa uh, to become more Africa-centered, and that may have consequences for the type of projects, health projects that they pursue, <laughs> that they may pursue projects that are more, uh, you know, sensitive to African needs <laughs> rather than sensitive to what the West thinks Africa needs. Yeah, and, and again, that sort of um, uh, autonomy and um Freedom to determine, uh, freedom to determine their own their own course um, is something interesting that that uh, that came up as well in this in this chapter, uh, which uh, which is the the cultural differences with regard to charity and and this again um, we don't need to go into it but but these cultural differences in terms of how Africans view uh, charity and humanitarianism again are, are present something of a um, of a divergence along the, the same lines as you discussed mm. in, in earlier chapters, you know, the, mm. the um, different approaches to illness and, and healing and, and um, medicine. So, um, yeah, so that it's a really, um, I'm, I really did at the, at the risk of, of betraying a favorite uh, chapter, um, uh, the, the, <laughs> the chapter on humanitarianism might, might well have been um, uh, one I enjoyed um uh, most so, um, so, um, but that's not to that's not to uh, <laughs> that's not to slight any of the other chapters, including uh, the sixth chapter, uh, where you look um, in particular at, at uh, healthcare policy in Botswana, Ghana, and Rwanda. Um, the the chapter subtitle is agency and institutions, and and in you conclude in this chapter that agency and institutions determine healthcare policy. Um, in, in these three countries where uh, one might expect agency, um, which you which you define, I should say, um, much earlier in the book, uh, to be the sole determinant of, of policy. And so I wonder, uh, starting from this conclusion, if you could, if you would tell us why, um, um, you know, so what, what's the basis there, right? Why we might expect agency to be the sole determinant of policy, um, um, you know, maybe what you mean by agency, elite agency specifically. Um, and, uh, yeah, that'd be, that'd be great. Okay. Well, uh, first of all, you know, uh, why Botswana, Ghana, and Rwanda out of 55 African countries? Uh, I chose these three countries uh, uh, because I thought that they represent in spite of the uh, smallness, if I may use this term, of the sample size, I thought that these three countries represent sort of the gamut of, 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 of African countries. 
Botswana is a middle-income African country, so it could be seen to represent other middle-income African countries, of which there are admittedly few, I think about 14. Uh, Ghana is a low-middle-income country, so it could be seen to represent low-middle-income African countries, and Rwanda is a low-income African country, so it could be seen to represent uh, African countries in that category. Uh, so that's the reason for choosing these three countries. Furthermore, all three countries have made universal access a centerpiece of their healthcare policy. In other words, they have a policy in common whose results I thought could be measured uh, and, uh, and, and compared. So uh, we can say that the choice of these three countries uh, was uh, a kind of stratified sampling, if I, if I may be uh, somewhat, uh, somewhat technical. Uh, also, collectively, Botswana, Ghana, and Rwanda are representative of the political regimes of contemporary Africa. Botswana is uh, is a democratic country. Ghana is well on its way to being democratic, and Rwanda is somewhat more problematic. <laughs> but nevertheless, uh, you know, I thought that it it, it represent it, it represented a, a good number of 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 the political regimes that exist uh, in Africa. So there are good reasons for focusing. On, on these two countries, on these three countries, rather. And so what I do in the chapter is to look at their history, uh, look at the type of government that they have, the type of economy, uh, the type of healthcare policy that they've pursued. So if you consider healthcare policy as the sort of dependent variable in these countries, the question is what 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 has driven that policy, and so the approach here is that of uh, historical policy analysis. I look at uh, basically the post-colonial history of each of these countries, and then ask in that history what factors appear to be most crucial in determining healthcare policy. And what uh, uh, became recurring uh, in all three cases is agency. And by agency, I mean elite commitment to healthcare. Okay. Uh, Botswana at independence was extremely poor. Uh, it had a per capita GDP of $65 per year. Uh, uh, and of course, uh, Botswana became a major, uh, you know, in fact, the biggest producer of cut diamonds in the world. Okay. Uh, but 
other African countries also have diamonds, <laughs> but have not done as well as Botswana. So what that suggests is that, you know, natural resource endowment per se, uh, you know, uh, does not guarantee success. It is the use to which such endowment is put that makes a difference. And here we're talking about elite. We're talking about management of, of, of resources. Uh, same thing in Ghana. At independence, uh, you know, the Nkrumah government was very much committed to an inclusive healthcare system. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Ghana went through a very tough time in the 1970s, and especially in 1980s, if you recall, in 1984-85, when thousands of Ghanaians were thrown out of Nigeria. Uh, uh, so Ghana became a kind of uh, poster child in the 1980s for African stagnation. Uh, In the 1990s, under the former PNDC, now NDC government led by Jerry Rawlings, uh, the economy started to pick up again. Uh, And then by 2000, or the early uh, part, of the 21st century, uh, the economic growth in Ghana became more uh, uh, more sustainable. Never really of uh, you know Chinese-like scope, like 10 to 12 percent growth per annum, but decent, four to five percent. Uh, so as the economy of Ghana has picked up. Ghana has sort of returned to its earlier commitment to healthcare. Again, underscoring the importance of agency. So it seems that uh, the idea of, and I, 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 I criticize this term in the book, but we can use it here in a limited way, there is the notion and policy studies of a policy window <laughs> in which uh, sometimes a policy is not necessarily abandoned, but is put aside because of adverse circumstances. And then when those circumstances change, then the policy is revived. <laughs> but that cannot happen unless you have elites, <laughs> who, or unless you have uh, elite agencies who, who can revive such policies. Okay. So uh, agency uh, matters but of course, it's not just agency; it's also institution. Sure. Okay. No matter how much, for example, the Ghanaian uh, elite wanted to revive uh, healthcare, a la Kwame Nkrumah, if the economy was not in demand, they would not have been able to do that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you have to look at uh, agency and institutions jointly. But I tilt uh, toward uh, agency a little bit more because I believe that, you know, uh, human action matters. Okay. Uh, but perhaps nowhere is agency, is the importance of agency uh, uh, underscored than in Rwanda. I mean, Rwanda, this is a country that experienced genocide, uh, you know, in 1994. Uh, it lost 
anywhere between 800,000 and a million people in the span of three years. Uh, and I remember writing an article, my my very first article uh, uh, as a young faculty member was on failed states. And at that time, I classified Rwanda as a failed state. That was back in 1995. Well, I can tell you that Rwanda is not in that category, at least for the past 10 years. <laughs> uh, and it is uh, one of the biggest spenders on healthcare in Africa. Uh, why? Because of the commitment of the RPF, led by Paul Kagame, to improving healthcare and other social conditions, uh, which the Rwandese regime see as a way of legitimizing itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The regime does not necessarily use democratic or political legitimacy, it uses social legitimacy. So it sees healthcare spending, healthcare education, housing, and other things as, 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 as the basis for uh, for its legitimacy. Uh, thus, it spends, again, anywhere between uh, a quarter to uh, uh, a fifth, anywhere between a fifth and a quarter of its uh, annual budget on, on, on health. That, that's pretty impressive, and that would not have happened by itself. The elite made the calculation that improving the standards of living of people mattered for our right to govern. Okay, but again, uh, uh, that commitment would not have been honored if the Rwandese government, or as they say, the Rwandan government, did not perform better economically. So again, it's not agency versus institution, it's agency and institution with uh, a kind of uh, tilt toward agency. Mm-hmm. But uh, other social scientists may disagree. They may give more weight to institutions, but in the final analysis, I tilt more toward agency because I believe that development and underdevelopment is ultimately caused by people. Right. <laughs> the, uh, economies do not just happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, economies essentially are systems in which real people participate. And so, therefore, it matters what kind of agent that you have that participate in an economy and what kind of state that you have that uh, sets up the rule of the economic game. So, again, uh, uh, agency matters. Well, and that's, the, that's a, a perfect uh, segue into the, uh, the final chapter of the book, which is uh, Healthcare Policy in Africa in the 20th 21st century challenges and opportunities. Right? So the uh, and here the, the challenge is, is represented by the Ebola pandemic of 2014, and the opportunities are represented by uh, the very long history of Cuban involvement in, in the healthcare of Africa. Um, and but picking up uh, where you just left off, right? This idea of uh, the role of political will, right, or agency by African leaders, so on, um, is is a question that you that you. Uh, sort of posed rhetorically in in this final chapter, right? Um, uh, in comparison to Cuba, right, which can be, which has been so generous with its healthcare, human power, and uh, the the question that's posed is why not uh, the same thing with uh, with West African 
countries. Right. Yes. Uh, Cuba is a, is, a, is a fascinating example of uh, what is possible even in poor countries uh, when you have the right leadership. Uh, in many ways, in uh, 1959, uh, at the beginning of the Cuban Revolution, uh, uh, Cuba was where uh, many African countries are now and have been in the post-colonial period. In fact, uh, in 1963, Cuba lost half of its medical doctors when they defected to the West. Imagine losing half, 50% of your medical doctors uh, when you are under an embargo or when you are about to be put uh, under an embargo. But today, some, uh, you know, 51 years later, Cuba has more per capita doctor, more doctor per capita than any other country in the world, including the United States. So how how did Cuba do it? Well, uh, in this chapter, I show that uh, Cuba, and and I should also mention, partly as a result of Cuba having more medical doctors per capita than any other country in the world, Cuban health indices, infant mortality, uh, adult life expectancy, and you name it, Cuban health indices compare more than favorably with health indices in developed countries. So what Cuba shows is that it matters uh, that, that, that poor countries can invest in, in their medical personnel and in their medical healthcare system in general, and when they do that, they can get quite positive healthcare outcomes. <laughs> so, in other words, you don't have to be rich to have a decent healthcare system, and you don't have to be rich to have people have healthy lives. <laughs> so, those are, in my view, some of the most important lessons. <laughs> That Africa has, uh, that, that, that Cuba offers to Africa and to the rest of the world. So, how has Cuba done it? In this chapter, I demonstrate that uh, Cuba has planned its medical success. In other words, success does not just happen. You have to plan it and go about implementing the plan. Uh, Cuban success in healthcare. Uh, can be attributed to efficient allocation of scarce resources to areas that offer the highest return on investment. And that would be public health and all of its components. And here I'm quoting Fidel Castro here. And I quote, In the field of public health, we have been guided from the outset by a number of basic criteria. The first is to prioritize public health as one of the vital services for human society. Moreover, 
It is what the people value more than anything. I cannot understand how politicians do not understand that. End of quote. So I was not speaking. This was Fidel. <laughs> okay. That you have to prioritize public health as one of the vital services for human society. So Cuba did not immediately embrace biomedicine, in other words, Western medicine, after the revolution. It invested in public health first. And then it shifted to biomedicine in the mid-1970s without sacrificing public health. Okay. In fact, the two go together. A good public health system makes biomedical intervention more effective, right? So, for example, a, a, a public health system means you have a, a, you know, you vaccinate everybody, right? So it means having a population that is immunized. Well, you know that immunization does not necessarily prevent that you won't get sick a hundred percent. But if you are immunized and you should get sick, you are an easier patient to treat than if you are not immunized. Right? So uh, biomedical uh, intervention and public health are complementary. But there is a kind of sequencing to that. You have to invest in public health first, which is also cheaper, so you can get more bang for the buck. Once you get people healthy, you get them vaccinated, you get them to, to drink clean drinking water, uh, and, 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 and so on, then you can shift to treating the more, you know, chronic diseases such as, you know, heart disease, diabetes, high blood pressure, etc. Okay. And so that's what Cuba did. Cuba invested in public health before it could invest in biomedicine. The problem in Africa is this that uh, because in part of the legacy of the colonial period, uh, African governments have tended to prioritize biomedicine over public health. Furthermore, the institutions of biomedicine have tended to have an urban bias. Mm -hmm. So virtually all of the largest hospitals in Africa tend to be located in cities, for example. And so to get care, so-called advanced care, people have to come to the city. Okay. But if you have a good public health system uh, that relies on, a, on, an, on an extensive network of dispensaries and primary health care clinics, you don't need to build large hospitals and cities. Okay. Because uh, hospitals are the most costly item in any country's healthcare budget. Okay? So, uh, you get more bang for the buck, once again, by investing in public health. So that's the lesson of Cuba, the first lesson of Cuba for, for Africa, that Africans need to rediscover, uh, uh, you know, investing in public health, because a good public health system which emphasizes uh, prevention uh, then can set the stage for uh, and, and facilitate, uh, you know, bio biomedicine. Uh, Cuba, as I suggested, also 
has invested in healthcare personnel very heavily, such as doctors and nurses, rather than high-tech medicine, such as machines. Okay, as I mentioned before, uh, uh, in 1959, the year of the revolution, Cuba had an estimated 6,000 doctors, many of whom were practicing in the greater Havana area. By 1963, Cuba had lost half that number. Okay, but by 1985, Cuba had trained seven, by 2005 rather, Cuba had trained 70,594 doctors, 159,000 nurses, and 6,640 dentists. This is on pages 256 and 257 of my book. Uh, So Cuba does not waste time training doctors. In the West, it can take as many as 10 years to train one doctor who is then deeply in debt. (laughs) Because, you know, medical school in this country, you know, is basically supported by medical students. In Cuba, medical school is free. And by that, I mean medical school is financed entirely by the state. Furthermore, the medical school curriculum is designed by a panel of experts who determine the health problems faced by humanity in general and the Cuban population in particular. And then that same panel identifies the specific skills that doctors will need to handle these problems as well as the basic theoretical knowledge undergirding these skills. One of the problems in the U.S., as you may know, is that uh, people are trained not in the areas that are uh, where there is the most need, but often in the areas that command the biggest salary because of the debt incurred by medical students. So the U.S. healthcare system and Western healthcare systems in general emphasize specialization over general practice. But to have a healthy population, you what you need is general practitioners. Okay, that's the lesson provided by Cuba. Training general practitioners who are also trained in public health. And so when you go to Africa, you find that in many countries, the people providing general practitioners, uh, general uh, who are general practitioners and who are providing public health, particularly in the rural areas, tend to be Cuban volunteers. Okay, So I advocate in Chapter 7 an arrangement whereby Cuba does with African countries what it already does in Venezuela, for example, where in exchange for oil, say in Nigeria, Cuban doctors would be sent to augment the number of Nigerian doctors and nurses. You might do the same also in Angola and countries that do not have oil but that have some other minerals. It's possible, in other words, for Cuba and African countries to engage in ways that are mutually beneficial. Because Cuba is also a poor country, but it has done tremendously well in the medical sphere, in the medical, in the medical field. In fact, uh, Cuba's number one export is, uh, you know, medical skills. 
So there is no reason why it cannot sell such skills and share such skills. Well, it already shares them, but shares even more with, uh, with, with African countries. But uh, even if that were to be the case, you would still be left with the problem of brain drain, right? So even if you increase the supply of doctors, the supply of nurses, dentists in Africa, how do you prevent these people from leaving? Uh, so you have to look at the environment in which healthcare is provided uh, in Africa and see what help can be done to encourage people to stay. So, uh, uh, so people uh, who work for the government uh, uh, in the medical field may be given a bonus, for instance, to practice in the rural areas. There is a tremendous uh, uh, gap in the doctor-patient ratio in Africa. African doctors tend to be concentrated in cities, leaving the countryside without medical providers. So giving people bonuses, offering them subsidies for their houses and, 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 and patrol for their cars, you have to figure out a way of keeping people in, okay, without using force. Uh, uh, Africa also has to develop capacity in, uh, in, 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 in its healthcare uh, systems by cooperating across borders. Do you realize that in the entire West Africa sub-region, which easily has 500 million people, including probably nearly 200 million in Nigeria, you don't have one public hospital in the West Africa sub-region that you could compare with a major public hospital in the United States, such as a Cook County Hospital in Chicago, a Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, or a Kings County Hospital in Brooklyn, New York. If countries would pull together uh, and and, and build such a facility uh, and then allow... Uh, their citizens to uh, to uh, to cross borders to receive care in West Africa, rather than traveling all the way to the West to receive care. This could uh, go a long way toward improving access to 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 biomedicine in Africa. But again, biomedicine is not the solution by itself. You need a combination of biomedicine as provided in hospitals and other facilities but also public health. You also need to have behavioral change. Right. One of the things that I've noticed in urban Africa is a rise in obesity, uh, probably caused by the proliferation of fast food restaurants. So there will have to be uh, public health campaigns emphasizing behavior modification. Okay? People eating better, people uh, living a less of a sedentary life, people walking instead of driving. As Africa's middle class increases, of course, what happens is that, uh, you know, people uh, acquire automobiles and instead of walking, they drive even over a short distance. This is increasing obesity and it is, and with that, you have an increase in, you know, uh, so-called rich man's disease, such as diabetes, heart disease, Hard blood pressure, high blood, uh, high blood pressure, the consumption of uh, processed food, 
may well be responsible for an increase in cancer uh, in, in, in parts of Africa. So people have to eat more organic food. Uh, and so in the final analysis, uh, you know, healthcare policy has to be holistic, you see. It doesn't have to necessarily to be limited to, you know, to building health facilities. Uh, it also has to do with uh, educating people to take better care of themselves uh, rather than having the state or some other entities, uh, you know, intervening uh, on their bodies. And, of course, we should also mention, you know, how well you feel physically is not unrelated to how well you feel mentally and spiritually. And so people have to learn to have fun and to, and to enjoy life uh, uh, rather than stressing themselves out. So uh, this is also part, this should also be part of, uh, of uh, so there ought to be what we may call an economy of leisure. Uh, 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 that, that, that accompanies, you know, uh, 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 healthcare policy whereby people's mental predisposition is much more positive. Uh, because, you know, uh, how well you feel physically, as I just suggested, depends on how badly or how well you feel mentally. So this is all, these are all of the issues that we look at in the book with, uh, you know, varying degrees of emphasis. Right. And that's, a, that's a, a, I think, a perfect note uh, on which to end, a uh, positive note of, of taking in uh, factors, including leisure, uh, having fun, uh, lowering stress uh, on, uh, uh, on a holistic approach to uh, health and healthcare policy. Uh, uh, Dr. Cole, I can't thank you enough for, uh, for spending time uh, discussing uh, a book I enjoyed very much um, with me today, and I hope you'll uh, come back when you have a future project. I will. Thank you for having me. Okay. Folks, you've been uh, listening to uh, Professor Jean-Germain Croix discuss his new book, Healthcare Policy in Africa, Institutions and Politics from Colonialism to the Present, published by Robin and Littlefield. <laughs>